0: I just want to tell you, we, we have had some, some good uh, participation with the Glass Jar Activity Night. Um, in response to last week's sermon, some of you thought it would be cool to do uh, have a sheep shearing and wine vat night. Uh, if you weren't here, didn't check out the podcast, that was part of the sermon, so I don't think that one's going to gonna get vetoed, probably. Uh, my mother-in-law's looking at me like, that should be vetoed, so I'm going to go ahead and... Kick that one off. We did have a roast of Tessa Staltz, though, that I think should be in the jar, and everyone can get your material ready uh, for that. I did want to make one more announcement. Um, We're doing something new Uh, as a church. We're now four years old. We just became four years old on January 6th uh, of this past year, and we have just now... Uh, installed a financial advisory board to help us kind of navigate through the difficulties of handling finances and planning for the future. And uh, in the past, we have done six-month budget cycles. I'll try to keep this brief. We haven't hit them in in a while, Uh, but this year we want to go for it and we want to believe and we are not going backwards and we are going forwards. Uh, So instead of playing it safe and reducing the budget and skimping on the ways that we could help people and help our community, we are trying to move forward. So we have set, or we pending the approval of the members are hoping to set a budget of $95,000. So please be praying along with us uh, for that. Uh, And hopefully if those of you guys are are new, We're excited that you're here with us. And I know that it's kind of tacky for the very first thing that you hear from one of the pastor's mouths being, hey, yeah, we're going for it. We need a lot of money to do it. Um, But I want you to know that over the lifespan of this church, we have tried to be as generous as possible. um, And we want to continue in that trajectory, helping people in this community. And we want to take better steps to keep you guys involved as to what it is that we're doing as a family and ways that we can partner and help. Uh, folks together. So there will be ways that we can help in the next couple of days actually and we will keep you in the loop on those things. Okay, so last week we just did start a sermon series on the book of Exodus, and I have to tell you that I am super pumped about this. Uh, I've spent the majority of my life in school studying the Old Testament, so getting back into some Hebrew text has been a lot of fun. We are going to have some nerdy elements this evening, but as I mentioned somewhere, uh, I believe that the nerdy elements add a depth to our faith and allow us to see things that we might not have seen otherwise. Uh, the Bible is an ancient book, and for us to think that we can just open it up and read some stuff and, and get a nice, neat meaning or a nice, neat devotional might be a, a bit naive. I do trust the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, but sometimes we got to dig our heels in and get our hands a bit dirty as we wrestle with the text and trying to figure out what it has to say for us. I also want to say that this week's talk um, is good. I hope that I wasn't that came out all wrong. <laughs> uh, my My job tonight is just going to be walking us through the text, uh, and I actually don 't have a lot uh, to say in ways of application, but I hope that it will be clear for us as to which direction we should be heading as a church. So this is Exodus chapter one, beginning in verse one. I'm actually going to go back and some of you guys were on break. Welcome back students. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, But some of you guys weren't here last week. So we're going to go ahead and talk through the things that we looked at last week as well. But before we do that, let's pause and have a word of prayer. God, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to read your word. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have to be here as a community, as diverse as we are with regard to our Theology and our background and our experience and our education. God, we're thankful that you can speak to us in the midst of that diversity, that we can hear from you through the power of your Holy Spirit. This evening, I ask that you would keep us from error, that you would help us to be bold and to be encouraged to potentially go into some new areas that we may have been scared to go in the past. May you lead the way for us. God, we're thankful for the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We're thankful for the life and the hope that we have that's through him. We're thankful for the forgiveness that we have that's through him. We're thankful for the reconciliation with you that we have that is through him. We are thankful that he is present in this place and that he cares about us. God, for those in the room that are skeptical to that statement, would you show up? Would you break through whatever barrier we have built in between ourselves and you, and be present. May you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, stir up our hearts, challenge us, encourage us, and conform us into the image of your Son so that when we leave here, we can be a living, breathing embodiment of Jesus to our community. We pray these things humbly in his name. Amen. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I do have a lot of verses, so don't tune out on me. Stay, stay focused, people. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly." The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. The word of God for the people of God. So last week, we began setting the context for the book of Exodus, and we thought, or we at least uh, explored the idea that Exodus is set within a, a set of five books that open up the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Those five books are called the what? the Pentateuch. Another name for the Pentateuch or the five books could also be what? The Torah. Very beautiful. If you weren't here last week, it's okay to be confused by that. But these five books together are known as the Torah, which open up the Hebrew Bible. And last week, we began to see that Exodus is dependent upon the things that come before it in the book of Genesis. In fact, the very first line of this book is, Fa'ela Shemot Bene Yisrael. And these Or, but these, or so these are the names of the sons of Israel. It begins with a conjunction. It is assuming that we know something about the book of Genesis. In particular, it is assuming that we know about the families in the book of Genesis. For lack of a better framing idea, Genesis is about families. We do have these first 11 chapters that talk about things like creation and what Christians have dubbed the fall. It's interesting. Side note, that when we talk about the Pentateuch, we talk about these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And traditionally, they are uh, associated with Moses as the one who writes down these ideas. However, last week, we began to explore the idea that it would be really weird for Moses to write about himself in the book of Numbers that he was the most humble of all people that had ever walked on the face of the earth. That's strange, is it not? Even more strange is Moses writing his own death account and about his burial. Come on, that's weird. We're all about God giving us things to do, but hopefully God doesn't want us to write an account of our own death, right? So scholars have said that throughout these five books, if they originated with Moses, they have lots of hands all over them. And around um, the sixth century, these texts came together. Now, this is interesting because in the sixth century, the people of Israel were dealing with the exile. This is a huge theme that is going to keep coming up for us. Israel had been promised land. They had been promised a land that is flowing with milk and honey. They had been promised to make, uh, for Abraham anyway, that his name would be great and that kings would come from him, that his descendants would be great and numerous. And we have this people, Israel, in the sixth century that has been booted out of the land because of their own disobedience. Now, just think about this for a second. If we have all these fingerprints on the Bible and it's being brought together in the sixth century and a story of Israel being removed from the land, let's think about Adam and Eve for a second. In the garden that is lush and verdant, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're not supposed to break any of the commandments. And when they do, they are removed from that land. We can see even here that there's fingerprints all over this Bible. And this, for the people in the sixth century, thinking that God had abandoned them and booted them out of the land, they could look back to the story of their own origins and see themselves in it. So we have this weird set of texts in Genesis 1 through 11 that talks about creation and it talks about the fall and it talks about all these things. But for an ancient audience, they would have heard so many different resonances that we do not hear or we do not hear. Care to engage. But for the most part, Genesis is about a family. It's about a family that's headed by Abraham, and we meet him in Genesis chapter 12. And God calls Abraham and gives him these promises, these beautiful promises that his name will be great and that he'll have lots of kids and that kings will come from him and that they will have this land. And we follow Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And at the end of this story, we see Jacob and his sons in Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Now, there's all kinds of stuff going on there as to why they go down to Egypt and how they have favor. And that basically has to do with the fact that one of Jacob's kids named Joseph ascends the ladder of success in Egypt and becomes Pharaoh's number two man in all of the land. Which is why when we open up Exodus, it says there was a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, okay? But here we're looking back and Exodus is assuming that we know something about Genesis. Now, I'm going to get some mileage out of this this example. I keep coming back to it, okay? But we do have Harry Potter here. And for you, when you dip in and you start reading, I had to move my example to a different book in the saga. I apologize for that. But when you dip in and you start reading Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, you have to know something about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And you have to know something about the Chamber of Secrets. It's supposing that you know these things. You would not give to your friend volume three or four of Harry Potter because that is ridiculous, people. And if that is you, please repent now. There's a kneeling bench at the altar. You can come on up. No, I'm just kidding. But it is assuming that you know something about the previous episodes in this saga In the same way, however, there's new information and you don't just look back, you begin to move on. And I remember when I was reading Harry Potter and I do read other books, okay? So just get off my case. This isn't my my one trick pony. I have read other books in my life, but I remember I was just, um, I think I was in grad school or something. And I just remember, I have this green recliner at my mom's house, and I just camped out in that green recliner. I'm like, Mom, give me some Cheetos! And I'm upstairs, I'm reading these books. I'm like 25 at the time. This is not advisable for anybody. But, you know, I'm, I'm... still, okay, um, when we got to the end of this, it was terrible, it was like the worst thing, because you're like, I want to reread this. Or if there are shows that you guys have watched, when you get to the end of that series, the best thing in the world is being introduced to a new show on Netflix, and there's like six seasons. You're like, yes, please, and thank you, because I've got the next three or four days carved out. <laughs> right? But when you get to the end, you're like, I wish I could do that all over again. That's how I feel about Friday Night Lights, people. Okay, now that we're all depressed. In Exodus, it turns the corner. It's assuming that we know something about Jacob and his kid, Joseph. This is why all of Israel, all of the sons of Israel, which is only 70 in the beginning, why they are, why, why they are in Egypt. They're there to avoid the famine. Everybody knows that Egypt has food. And because Joseph has been a man of prominence, his family is able to come down and to eat and not die which is a good thing. But it turns the corner in verse 8. It says, Then a new king, note, not pharaoh, not named. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Literally in the Hebrew it said, um, whom he did not know Joseph. Still, the thought here is the same. Joseph didn't mean anything because in most uh, circumstances, you could think that this new king would have known who he was, but he did not care. Although there's all sorts of ambiguity as to how long of a time period has elapsed between Jacob and Joseph and all these family members and the arrival of this new king. But he comes to power, and it sets the narrative that we're going to look at this evening, and it sets the narrative around this motif of fear the new king, everything that he does is fueled by fear, a fear that people will overtake him, a fear that his land will be ravaged by these rogue, crazy people out to the side, which we'll talk about more in a bit. And he starts to implement these new plans and new strategies to deal with this people group so that no problems happen. This new king is consumed by his own fear. He says, come, we must deal shrewdly. We must deal wisely with these people. That actually gets blown up because every plan that he lays out is completely decimated, not by the wise dealings of the people all the time, but because God is present with his people, It says, come, we must deal shrewdly with these people or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies. They're going to fight against us. And they're going to, what? Leave the country. This is what the whole book of Exodus is about. These people who are in oppression and bondage and they want to go. And Moses says, let us go. Even the king knows what is getting ready to happen because he can't stop the promises of what God has already laid out for his people in times past. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and they're going to leave because he was dependent upon these people to build up his cities and to build up his empire. This fear leads to forced Labor. It says in the text, so they put slave masters over the sons of Israel to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. One scholar says the forced labor practice whereby some are coerced to serve the ends of others is not mere abusiveness. Rather, it is an essential part of the great state building program. Great governments must build great buildings in order to produce permanent monuments to their power and greatness. Thus, the slaves must enhance precisely the power they most fear, resent, and hate. For the people of Israel, who are in Egypt at this time, they are working, doing backbreaking labor to support the empire that is attempting to suppress them. And we see in this text the beginning of the people crying out to God, turning, turning to God, asking for help. And we don't quite see that yet because, as we note in this passage, God is still with his people. Now, I do want to make a side note on Exodus and history for a minute. And this is where we're going to enter into some dangerous territory, okay? Are you guys brave tonight? Can you, can you hang with me tonight? Exodus is an ancient text. Thank you, Alex. Exodus is an ancient text, and we should not suppose that it tells history the same way that our history books tell history when we read them in class or at SU or what have you. This is not objective third-party reporting of facts. This is a theological history of God's people. Now, when some people approach the text, they want to answer all these sorts of historical questions about where did these people come from and what was going on and who was the king in power and where are these store cities of Pithom and Ramses. And we do have some um, coincidental, if you want to call it that. That's a weak word, and I don't like it, but it was the first one that came to my mind. There was some great building programs by Egyptian pharaohs around this time that Israel could have been in the land. We do not have any evidence outside of the Bible as to what was going on here. I want to submit to you, however, that the point of Exodus is not just to root something in history. The point of Exodus is to give us a paradigm of how God works for the sake of his people. Now, let me back up because some of you might be saying, hmm, tisk, tisk, tsk. I do believe that this story happened, okay? And you can see throughout the text, throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, they keep coming back to the story of the Exodus, this people group that is leaving oppression leaving slavery, and God is leading them through the waters of the Red Sea, whatever that looked like, and leads them through the wilderness, whatever that looks like. And we have these stories of these people that the Israelites keep going back to to say that's how God works. So there are some anchors in history, but I think that we would be a bit wrong-headed to suppose that every fact in this story is meant to be checked for historical accuracy. So we have a new king that is attempting to um, have uh, power or uh, to to be one who is oppressing this people to um, promote his own agenda. And there's some difficulties there with history because we don't have any sources outside of the Bible that prove this happened exactly the way that the Bible says. We don't know where Pithom and Ramses are. We don't know where Mount Sinai is. We don't know the route that they took wandering in the wilderness. We don't know where the Red Sea is or the water that they crossed, supposedly. There's lots of questions surrounding this narrative. But in the narrative, let's get nerdy okay in verses 13 and 14 we see this this hebrew root that keeps showing up it says and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You see the same Hebrew text here that is the same Hebrew root, avad. It's a servant type word. It's a slavery type word. And for any ancient reader of this text, it would have been like a punch in the face over and over and over. Because within the scope of two verses, there are five words. I'm getting worked up here, people. (laughs) One scholar says this frequent repetition intensifies the impression of suffering. The serve words in Hebrew come like hammer blows, making the Israelite agony palpable. I love that word. To the audience of the story, it's palpable. These guys were in it. You know what I mean? (laughs) No, let me try it again. These guys were in the thick of things. It was ruthless oppression of these people. And it was forced immigrant labor. I'm not trying to get dicey on us tonight. This was a foreign people in the land of Egypt that was not their own. It was not their home. And the king could make them do whatever they wanted because they were eating his food. So he says, you're going to build me some store cities. What? (laughs) I'm going to put some taskmasters over you. What? I hope you like bricks and mortar because you make them now. What? I don't know, Joseph. Got my face. This is like a complete and utter barrage that is happening to Israel who go from experiencing God's blessing in the land to now having to work forced labor as immigrants in a land that is not their own. It's not the land flowing with milk and honey. It is not the promised land that God has promised them. And here they are. And they're attempting to figure out what is going on here in the midst of this. But the king's plan does not work, okay? We know this. We know how this story ends, I think. The text says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. He wasn't working them hard enough, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) They kept having babies, people. They weren't working hard enough in the fields with the brick and the mortar, They were spreading out all over this land and they were taking over the land that was not theirs. And the fearful king begins to go to plan B while working them hard isn't going to do it. So let's up the stakes. And my man goes from something to a lot of things in a very short amount of time. It's a fear leading to infanticide where his best idea is Let's kill all the potential laborers. This is a really dumb plan. Not only is it inhumane, but it's also dumb because he wants people to build his store cities, and he says, let's kill all the boys, which is in this time period, ladies, apologies, in this time period, that was the forced laborers. And also, if he's so worried about people having babies, and he's letting all these ladies... You know, it's just, there's a lot of holes in this, in this plan, people. But he says, or, or the text says, the unnamed, and again, this is me, not the Bible, but the unnamed, keep thinking about it, the unnamed king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. The king has no name. We don't know who he is. But the text says, oh, these two, Shifra and Puah. Remember that because they're about to do work. The the Old Testament gets a bad rap sometimes, and I know that it's an ancient context, and it's a very patriarchal context, but in Exodus, there's a series of some odd 12 women who do work, starting with these two right here, to Moses' mom, to his sister, to Moses' wife. It's all these named women that are just doing work in the Bible for the sake of God's people. And ladies, do not forget that. Do not let anyone silence you in this building, because there is a job that we need you to do that no one else can do. No man could have done this job. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting on a soapbox here, people, and I need to back up and take a breath. But these two ladies were named Shifra and Puah in contrast to the unnamed king of Egypt. Carol Meyer says, Moses may be the major Israelite figure in the book of Exodus, but the first individual Israelites mentioned are two women, Shifra and Pua. Two female members of an outcast group are conferred the dignity of names in contrast to the nameless, powerful king. They're two female members of what? An outcast group. All right, now let's think about this. Going back to this text here, the unnamed king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. There's all kinds of really fun questions that surround this word here. Because no longer are we talking about B'nai Yisrael. No longer are we talking about the sons of Israel or the Israelites. We're talking about Hebrews. Which for us, it's like, eh, six in one, half dozen in another, right? Not really. Because this word has connotations that go beyond Israel. Remember, Israel was still forming as a people at this time, and these ladies are associated with the Hebrew people, Ivri people. One scholar says this term, with its cognates known all over the ancient Near East, that means there's other terms in other languages that look a lot like Ivri that have connotations that go beyond what we might think of as just Hebrews. Now that's all kinds of sketchy there, okay? That is not one plus one equals two. People are making some some jumps here, but This term, he says, refers to any group of marginal people who have no social standing, they own no land, and who endlessly disrupt ordered society. They are low-class folks who are feared, excluded, and despised. And this is where Shifra and Pua come from. And these are the people that Shifra and Pua go to bat for. And to the low-class folks who are feared and excluded, and despised, kill their baby boys. The text there it doesn't say just kill the boys. It says kill their sons. Benim. It's not just this. And I know this this is this is uh, nuanced here, but it's not just this gendered entity. It's family. When Abe came, uh, I was about to say when Abe came flying out of my wife, but that's just a weird image for everyone, and I just want to back that up a bit. But I remember when Abe came, it, see, I can't say anything, but when, we didn't know what Abe was. But when he, when he emerged, nope. You know, when Abe showed up, we knew who he was. And Kate said to me, what is he? Son. Boy. Abram. It was a weird series of five minutes, because then Kate went on to say, "Why don't I hear him?" And there was about eight to 10 nurses in there doing work, and I didn't know, and she was crying and I was crying. He ended up being OK, but he's a boy. He's a son. He's ours. These are the people that this unnamed king wanted to do away with. Now, it's dangerous Google imaging midwife water birth, okay? Just let let me tell you that. It is dangerous to do that. I'd be lying to you, and I know I don't have to say this, but I'd be lying to you if I was to say that I've never fallen down a weird rabbit hole on YouTube with unassisted births I was up one night about a week before Abe showed up, before Abe emerged, and I was like, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm old at this point, but I was like, Well, I went to a Christian school and they never really made us watch any delivery videos, so, because you know how it's not Christian. Um, so I, I got on YouTube and just typed it, and next thing I know, man, it was just, I was all over the place. I was in the Amazon, I was in, uh, like, Door frames with German, strong German women. I, I, I can't. It was just like, it's a dangerous thing. Google imaging midwife water birth. But if any of you know a midwife, and I know you do, okay, these ladies and men are passionate about life. And they are passionate about childbirth. And if you've ever sat in a room with my girl, Sarah, I'm sure you've heard some words that make you blush in a very small window of time. But it's because they have devoted their life to women's health and to seeing babies born healthy and happy to families that love them. And I know that if you're a king and you start talking to the midwives, even way back when, if you say, hey, I want you to kill some people, I know what a midwife is going to want to say. And if it's just from the few that I know, I think they'll say it loudly and clearly. And Shifra and Pua say to this man, in no no matter of speaking, bro, No. (laughs) Because in this context, this is not what they do. They are the ones entrusted to deliver life. Sarah thought it would be funny if I gave this talk on a birthing ball. (laughs) Because in the text, it talks about when you go to the birthing stones, which is literally just two stones. I thought it would be cooler if I had my two stones here and we just got in position, you know? I'm going to move on now. (laughs) The midwife's refusal, this is one scholar, to follow Pharaoh's decree is the oldest record in world literature of the spurning of a governmental degree. Bro, no, we are not going to do what you say. And remember, this was an outcast group on the margins of society that was seen as something, and they're talking to the most powerful person in all the land. And they go on their way, and they completely disobey what he tells them to do by these low-class folks who are feared, excluded, and despised. They are the ones that are putting on this spurning of the governmental decree at that time. It's by these low-class folks who are guided by another type of fear. Let's bring it full circle, because we have this new king who is fearful of his own status, who is fearful of his own empire, who is fearful of his own prominence coming, to, starting to crumble down. And we see these women who are guided by a different type of fear. The text says the midwives, they feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live like a good midwife will always do. Imagine the scene though. Yeah, these are some brazen, brash ladies, but they are defying the king who is telling them to go kill infant boys, you better believe that he would also kill them. And in spite of that threat, they say, no. And then they lie about it right to his face. And this is where the Bible doesn't look like the Bible that my mom and dad used to read to me or the ones that we read to our kids because what we see here is different they say when they're asked to give reason, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. And I love how they kind of stick it to them even more here because they're saying that my, my ladies, uh, they're, they're a little bit more vigorous, uh, shall we say, than yours. They give birth before we even show up. They're the strong, independent German women in the doorframe that I see on YouTube on assisting, you know? They are strong, independent ladies is what they say. And there might be some truth to that. But deep down, it seems like it's an untruth, which leads us to that old moral dilemma. What would you do if so-and-so comes to your door and asks if you're hiding such and such? Do you lie? Because if you lie, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. But if you don't lie, then they're going to die. The text has something to say about that. And here, the example that we see from Shifra and Puah is questionable, and it's not the ethic I was taught from, from my folks. My doctoral supervisor says this, and it's going to push your buttons. He says, Where there is a truthful relationship between people, telling the truth is part of that relationship. Where there is no truthful relationship, it does not isolate truth telling as an obligation. Where powerful people are oppressing powerless people, the powerless people are not obliged to tell the truth to their oppressor. Dang, Johnny G. That's thick. He talks about the, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt not lie, but in his context that he's spinning here, um, and we'll see this in a, in a bit um, down the road, he says it's more about perjury in a courtroom scenario. Either way, we spin it, though. And I've seen some commentators really try to make this nice and neat and have these women not lying. Any way we spin it here. God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Now, there's some speculation that these midwives back in the day, they were ones that could not have children themselves. Let's just play with that for one second. These women that have given their lives to seeing the successful birth of other children in other families are given families of their own, by a God who is pleased in them. Now, it does say, uh, because the midwives feared God, it doesn't go on to say, and because they lied their faces off in front of the imperial power of the time, but we do have this text that seems to be pushing us in a direction where God says, well done, my good and faithful servants. You have defied the empire, and you have saved a lot of beautiful healthy, happy Hebrew baby boys. It all leads me to this. And basically we've just kind of marched through. And yeah, there's overtones and undertones and all kinds of tones going on in this talk. But it leads me to this. We've got two contrasting examples of a new king who is fearful of what's going to happen to his empire. And we have two named Hebrew midwives, part of the out group that say, no, bro, not on my watch. Who or what are we afraid of? Who or what is silencing us today? Who or what is asking us to do something that we cannot get on board with? What fear determines our actions or our non-action? This whole week, let me just, let me just, here, I'm gonna lift up the curtain and bring you back into my world of pastoring and being really young and not knowing quite what we're doing, okay? This whole week, I felt like, especially online, I've just been like tiptoeing around these, these huge grenades that could take me out and could take us out and could take everything out. And I'm just fearful that I'm not gonna say the right thing or do this or do that or just who or what Are you afraid of? What are the fears that are determining your actions? Because it's easy to play it safe. It's easy to be quiet. It's easy to acquiesce. It's easy to kind of backpedal into the distance and not do a dang thing. And what are the fears that are taking us out of the game? What powers in our world are oppressive? Now, there's probably a big elephant in the room, and I'm not even wanting to go into that big elephant into the room at this point in time, but what I am trying to say is there are things in your life all around you where oppression is happening to the people that you know and you love, whether it's the oppression of poverty, whether it's the oppression of failed relationships, whether it's the oppression of abusive home, whether it's the oppression of being trapped in your own mind and in your own depression and anxiety. There's things that are taking place and there are oppressive powers in this world. And what are we doing about it as God's people? Are we too scared to pick up the phone and have the conversation? Are we too scared to invite that family over to dinner? Are we too scared to assert ourselves in conversations where we don't feel like we belong? Are we too scared to call our friends on their sin, or are we too scared to do anything at the risk of being offensive? Are we a part of the oppressive powers that are keeping people down? Are we even cognizant of the things that we have done to hurt people? Are we even cognizant of the things that we have done, misguided by our own selfish ambition to put the, the sake of other people on the back burner. Are we the ones that know that the text says that we should have the same mind as Christ, who made himself nothing? Yet, are we the ones that want to make ourselves something? Are we a part of the oppressive powers and who needs in our life, our protection and our intervention? Who are those people? And I don't think it's just some ambiguous or hypothetical group somewhere out there. I believe that there's people in this place tonight who need an advocate. And for some people, all that is, is acknowledging the fact that they have risked a lot to be in this space and to say hello to them, to acknowledge their existence, to say you are welcome here and to invite them into your life. Or do we just not care about that because we got stuff to do? You know, Jesus, um, don't pay too much attention to the severe whiteness of Mary and Jesus here in the picture because that's not, you know, that's how it was back in the day. Um, Jesus, in a text that's referred to as the slaughtering of the innocents, was also one who was on the hook at one point by an emperor or a power that was fearful that someone would overthrow his kingdom. And a same sort of edict came down that they were to kill all the boys under the age of two, and Jesus was on the hook for that. And this is a picture of what it might have looked like with Mary trying to get the heck out of town with her boy Jesus. I'm inclined to think, and perhaps this is wrong, but I'm inclined to think, I mean, Mary was kind of, she was pretty brash and brazen, so I'm not so sure how much she would have been hiding, but still in this picture we see the humanity of what's going on even to our Lord and Savior. And I would imagine there were people in his life that were stepping up for him to be safe and warm and cared for. And we have that same call today. Walter Brueggemann says this, there are in our own day little peoples who as a threat or an inconvenience for established power are eliminated in wars and invasions or are simply denied the right to live. In different parts of the world, different peoples play the role of Hebrew, the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed. They are non-ethnic, preformed, devalued folk who suffer at the hands of violent, legitimated policy. Who or what do we fear tonight? As followers of Jesus, I would submit to you that we have nothing to fear. As followers of Jesus, I would submit to you that it is time for us to be silent no longer. As followers of Jesus, I would submit to you that it is time that we open up our homes to the people that need us the most. As followers of Jesus, I would submit to you that it is time that we have those conversations that we have been avoiding for months or years or for some long period of time. As followers of Jesus, I submit to you that it is time to begin looking and acting like our Savior, each and every day, and I can't be the one to tell you what that looks like, but I know it transcends legislation, and it transcends policy, and it transcends politics, and it begins here and now in the conversations that we have with our friends and our family. I believe as much as I am standing right here today, and I believe that you can affirm me in this, our world is in a way. And it's time for the family of God to start acting like it with our love and our compassion and our care and our concern. Let's be the church and let's show a different image of Jesus to the people around us. And as you sit here, silence the voices of politics and silence those voices and think about the people that God has placed in your life tonight, where he is desperately wanting you to courageously and boldly begin to move, to establish a relationship with them that might lead to life transformation and hope for people that do not have it.